1: Joining us at this time, Professor Ahmed Bauer, who is the CEO of Universities South Africa, talking to us about the work that they are engaging in to help these students out. Professor Bauer, thank you so much for joining us here on The COVID Report. As I said just now, it has been over six months since universities, along with the students and the academic profession, was forced to adapt to online learning. What are some of the challenges that you would say have persisted over the period?
2: Well, let me begin by thanking you for having me on the program, and uh, I, I always enjoy being on the uh, Voice of It's. It's a wonderful opportunity again. Um, I, you know, some of the challenges we faced are fairly well known by now, you know. Uh, 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 one of them clearly is just the issue around uh, the uh, accessibility of online learning to many students in our system, uh, and uh, that, that had to do with uh, three or four different things. The one was just uh, the issue around uh, the availability of devices to students. Uh, secondly, the issue around connectivity. And and the connectivity issue, by the way, was uh, partly to do with the data being available, uh, but also to do with connectivity for students in rural areas, just the fact that there isn't sufficient uh, uh, mobile phone coverage, if you like, uh, mobile data coverage in many parts of our country. Um, and then thirdly, um, just the issue around uh, students having decent workspaces, you know, just where they could uh, uh, c- could uh, uh, could connect with their universities uh, in an environment where it was suitable for learning. Um, so those were issues relating to uh, the circumstances for students to connect. Uh, but there were two, I would say, two or three other major issues. The one is um, just the fact that uh, some of our universities uh, did not have the uh, the systems in place to make a rapid transition uh, into some form of online learning. Uh, and secondly, uh, it was the preparedness of staff at some of our universities to uh, to engage in online uh, delivery of um, of courses and so on. So um, there were multiple issues. It seems to me, and uh, uh, and you know, while some of our universities have done exceptionally well in these circumstances in doing this rapid transition, if you like, um, others struggled quite a lot. And uh, and I think that what we what we've emerged with is a fairly mixed picture, if you like, as we um, you know as we kind of do an analysis now of that transition round about March, April, May.
1: Now, the lockdown in many ways was a sobering reminder of the gross inequalities at play. And when we narrow it down to the education sector, there were many instances where schools in parts of the country were exposed to be grossly unequal in comparison to the other schools. And when it comes to institutions of higher learning and how they've had to try to make the academic year of 2020 work with so many of these inequalities at play, we've seen that some students who had adequate infrastructure like access to a laptop and wifi have been gravely disadvantaged. So can you please take us through which universities struggled the most and what support has been provided to them?
2: Yeah, thank you for that, Gamelit. And uh, I think we have to begin by saying that uh, the universities started out uh, with the intention that they would all be able to switch over to some form of online learning until, of course, uh, you know, when attempts were made to do that, it turned out that there were many uh, difficulties. And 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 clearly what COVID-19, you know, what the pandemic has done to us, uh, is really uh, kind of emphasized, if you like, uh, just how deeply unequal we are as a society. This is not just in the area of education. It's also true in the health sector. It's true in the food security sector and so on. So it's a uh, multiple areas in which we are, uh, you know, where, where this inequality has been highlighted by, by COVID-19. Um, so I think what the universities, uh, uh, what all 26 universities uh, arrived at was uh, some kind of uh, understanding that the important thing was to put in place a multiple, multiple approaches, if you like, to completing the academic year. Uh, uh and what that meant essentially was that at some institutions uh the emphasis wasn't totally on online learning, but that there was also uh this commitment to bring students back onto campus uh, so that students could uh, complete the academic year through a kind of uh blended learning approaches on campus, if you like it. So the emphasis wasn't on saying let's complete the academic year with online learning but rather saying let's use a. You know what? Uh, what you might think of as a multimodal approach, you know, to completing the academic year, and uh, and I think that that's the reason why we are seeing this very staggered end to the academic year. Some some universities are going to complete the academic year at the end of November, some are going to finish only at the end of March, right? uh, and that's partly because uh, we had to wait for the uh, you know for this uh, for this pandemic to re-peak and for the peak to get down to a level where we could uh, bring back the students onto campus, if you like, uh, to complete the academic year. So um, now you raised the question about the schools and I think that uh, that has been a a huge, that's going to be a huge challenge for us, I think, uh, as we head into the future, because in a sense um, you know, we really don't know yet, uh, you know, just what the impact of COVID-19 has been on those schools where facilities have not been available and and uh, and I think that, that we're still going to count the score on that. I think it's going to be, uh, what we are going to find, in fact, is that uh, there's going to be, a, have to be a massive intervention, uh, you know, as the pandemic uh, slows down uh, to, uh, to get students uh, to the point where they are not disadvantaged, if you like, yeah. Um And... And I think that what this has pointed out is the fact that we have to adopt a national approach to, uh, to this, uh, to address the inequalities. Um, so one of the things that we are talking about now in the higher education sector is the development of a national platform for teaching and learning. That will be accessible to all 26 universities so that we don't depend on the capacity of each university to, you know, to create the the platform that is required, but that they can depend on a national platform uh, on which to uh, build a kind of blended learning and uh, uh, sort of online learning more generally, if you like, Uh, I think what I'm saying is that we need a national approach to the provision of data, uh, the provision of technology, uh, the provision of devices and so on, rather than uh, you know expect each institution to do that of its own accord uh, when there are such uh, deep inequalities between institutions.
3: Now, there has been a contribution by Standard Bank, Prof. Please, can you share more on this contribution and which six universities will benefit from the contribution?
2: Yeah, first of all, you know, I think that we have to thank uh, the Standard Bank and various other donors, by the way, for coming to the table. Um, And uh, the uh, Standard Bank's uh, commitment has has been to six institutions. uh, And these were six institutions that were regarded as being at highest risk, if you like, for um, not being able to complete the academic year. And, uh, uh, and, and that definition was really laid out by, the definition of universities at risk was really laid out by DHET. Uh, and I'm very pleased to say, in fact, that those uh, six institutions are no longer uh, kind of in that danger list, if you like. I mean, they've all been elevated out of that list. So all of them are now very much on track to completing the academic year. So Standard Bank's contribution, together with other donors, I have to I have to say, uh, has really kind of focused in on on three major things. The one is the provision of data, the provision of devices, and also some contribution to towards uh, uh, food security, if you like, you know, just providing allowances to students who might be at risk of uh, of, uh, of of not being able to complete the academic year because of lack of funding. Um, And the donations uh, were, as far as I can remember, sort of 500,000 rand each. So uh, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's a very important pot of money for students that were at severe risk, if you like.
1: Now, Professor Bauer, we're exploring the idea of the missing middle when it comes to students on uh, this edition of the COVID report. Perhaps first explain to us what the missing middle students actually means. And then could you take us through how many students we have in the country who are considered to be in the missing middle?
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good question, you know, because we really don't have a firm kind of definition of what we mean by students in the missing middle. You know, this was a phrase that kind of uh, arose uh, during the Fees Must Fall and Rose Must Fall campaigns. Uh, um, but generally speaking, the way we would think about the missing middle is that, um, is that it's students who come from working-class families, uh, but who fall outside of the category of students who qualify for NISFAS grants. So in other words, it's students who come from families where where the family income is outside of the NISFAS threshold. Uh, And uh, and then I suppose going up to a family income of about 600,000. So that's the kind of category of students that we would be talking about. So um, now... Uh, One of the most important developments during this period has been this idea that uh, NISFAS, those students that that qualify for the NISFAS managed uh, DHET bursaries, that those students uh, will in the future receive devices. So that's a really important new development, and it's a it's it's a it's a development which really addresses which addresses a very serious uh, a shortfall, if you like, you know, in our system. But that doesn't address the needs of students in uh, of those students that we kind of refer to as students in the missing middle. So it's students who do not qualify for Nisfas grants because their family income is above the Nisfas threshold, uh, and then uh, and then you know have a in, uh, family income of up to six hundred thousand or something like that um, so it's those students in fact that were most uh, supported by both the standard bank grant and the grants of other donors like APSA and so on uh, that came to the party to support uh, this development
3: Speaking more on the criteria used to allocate which students would benefit from the grant? Is it only vulnerable students that are going to be prioritized? And are Standard Bank and some of the other donors going to play a part in determining the criteria that is going to be used?
2: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. <laughs> so I, I, I think I must uh, say that, you know, that a part of that, a part of the decision making on the part of the banks and other donors is really, uh, is done in consultation, you know, with, uh, uh, with uh, with uh, you know, with USAF and with the universities and so on. Uh, but at the same time, uh, of course, at the end of the day, it's the donor that decides, you know, just uh, how... Uh, you know, how the allocations are to be made. Um, you know, to your question, I think it needs to be uh, emphasised that it is indeed students who are at risk uh, of uh, not being able to complete the academic year, uh, vulnerable students, uh, as you point out, uh, that it, it is really vulnerable students who, uh, uh, who are being supported uh, by these, you know, with these grants that have been received. And, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it is an attempt, I suppose, uh, to try and ensure that uh, uh, students who uh, fall just outside of the DISFUS kind of threshold, you know, uh, that they are not left in the lurch, if you like, because it would be next to impossible for those students to receive, for example, loans from banks and so on, uh, because of the, um, the, the the you know the very small family earnings uh, of those uh, of those students. Yeah,
1: insightful stuff, Professor Bauer. Now, we've also talked at length about the way in which this pandemic has changed the landscape for the education sector. Now, in your view, as the CEO of Universities South Africa. Can you take us through what long-lasting changes you have observed that the pandemic has brought to universities across the country?
2: Yeah, I think that that's really the fundamental question, you know, about about the future. And I, I want to just begin by saying that, uh, you know, there are two major issues that we have to focus on in the next period of time. I mean, the one is just the short-term financial crisis. I mean, we have to remind ourselves, you know, that the um, that the uh, there's been a huge repurposing of university budgets, if you like, you know, to manage the uh, crisis that we faced with the pandemic, if you like. So, you know, money that would have been spent on research or have would have been spent on uh, new equipment or a range of uh, maintenance, uh, maintenance of our buildings and so on. Uh, the, you know, much of that money would have been repurposed, you know, for dealing with the emergencies of uh, online learning uh, or the purchasing of uh, uh, the preparation of our campuses for the return of students and so on uh, to deal with the public health uh, protocols and so on. Um, so there's there's a tremendous shortfall uh, already. And uh, what we've seen also is a, is a short, uh, is, a, is, a, is a small decline in government subsidy for this year already. Uh, but what we've also uh, what we're also encountering is just massive cuts uh, to the funding of research at our universities. So, uh, uh, so that's a that's a really major issue, uh, sh- the short term short term financial crisis. But there's also uh, deep fears about the long term sustainability of our universities because of the uh, dependence of our universities on government subsidy tuition fees, and so on. All of those are under pressure, if you like, you know, uh, for the longer term. And so there are deep concerns uh, about the uh, the sustainability of our universities. But I think the question that you are posing is a slightly different one. I think what you're really asking about is, uh, you know, is what changes can we expect in higher education because of COVID-19? And I would like to just focus on three things. The one is... Um, um, just the idea that we have to work uh, more seriously as a sector rather than uh, simply as a kind of uh, leaving uh, institutions, uh, you know, to solve the problems by themselves. So I mentioned earlier this idea of uh, developing a shared services platform for teaching and learning, for research management, for the procurement of journals, and so on. So in other words, saying that we really have to work as a sector uh, more effectively uh, so that we can address these inequalities and uh, the shortfalls that some of our universities experience. The second um, is the impact of uh, COVID-19 on the modalities of teaching and learning. And I think that what we are going to see uh, is much higher levels of uh, the use of technology in teaching and learning. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're all going to become... that all of our universities are going to become distance universities, you know, distance education universities. Uh, That's not going to be the case. But I think that there's going to be a much heavier dependence on students um, receiving their materials uh, online. And then, instead of having large classes, what you'll have is uh, small group tutorials and so on, which will be much more intensive uh, for learning purposes. So, in other words, I think what we'll see is... uh, a, a, a kind of a more traditional approach to learning, you know, just kind of uh, the approach that would be where students would read up materials on their devices and so on uh, online and then attend uh, uh, intensive tutorials, uh, which will really uh, kind of lead to much more interactive learning and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I'm of the view that that has enormous potential to improve the quality of teaching and learning at our universities. I don't accept the idea, you know, that uh uh, that uh, face-to-face learning is going to disappear. I mean, uh, some of some people are speaking about that. Uh, I don't buy that idea simply because I think that the role of universities in uh, shaping the new nation, in building uh, new generations of intellectuals, in uh, uh, you know, in increasing the, uh, the the critical awareness of our yeah, of our graduates, and so all of that requires face-to-face engagement. You know, we can't possibly imagine that uh, that that those roles of the universities, those critical roles of the universities are somehow going to disappear. Um, So so I think that, uh, you know, once we enter this area of blended learning, what it might also do is provide the basis for us to have increased access to higher education uh, so that where students might be much more kind of uh, brought into academic programs on the basis that they spend time on campus and spend time off campus. So that might be a possibility down the line. Um, uh, And I think that that is really going to be the major kind of change, it seems to me. But all of that really does depend on students having devices, students having access to, uh, to connectivity and so on. So, uh, so we have to get all of those things right uh, before we kind of embark on, uh, on, you know, uh, on, on, on those kinds of initiatives. The, the challenge we face is that, um, is that all of this costs money and we know that the economy isn't doing well and so on. So, so it really does depend on us uh, kind of adopting a, kind of a national approach to this rather than uh, leaving it to individual institutions to do it.
3: Now this plan seems to really change the face of education as we know it for us students but then this brings up the question of how would this possibly affect the way in which universities deliver teaching more especially to the missing middle students who to some extent were already struggling with the form of delivery previously who struggled during the COVID time
2: I think that's a really critical question. And I think that, you know, it really takes me back to the point that uh, we have to find a solution to these issues. So the access to devices and uh, the access to connectivity. Um, And also it's about uh, trying to ensure that students are uh, are sort of geared for this kind of learning. You know, not everybody is geared for Online learning—it seems to me so—it is about getting these things right, if you like, and by the way, building the capacity of universities to uh, to do this properly, so that uh, students aren't really getting uh, aren't getting a, a, a poor version, if you like, of uh, of online learning. Um, so I think that um, you know what I, what the universities have been able to do uh, is to put in place systems. That allows students in the missing middle to to gain access to devices and so on. Now, of course, this isn't true at all universities, but uh, certainly at most of our universities that has been the case. Uh, and uh, and 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 again, I just want to emphasize: we need a national solution to this. We, you know, this is this can't be left to chance. If you like, you know? uh, it, it, there has to be a national solution. And I think that what it means essentially is that if a student registers at uh, any one of our universities, uh, that and in the event that that student can't afford access to uh, a device and to data and so on that there is a national system in place which ensures that students have access to a device and data and so on so um, so it takes me back uh, to uh, to both questions that uh, you know the, the question about the, the, the both questions that have been raised the one is you know we, for the university system let's adopt a national approach to this Let's find a national solution to it. And for the school sector, uh, you know, we, we really can't have such inequalities between our schools. You know, so it's a that's a political question, it seems to me. And, you know, and I think that our government has to step up and really address this issue of inequality. Um, you know, it, it, we can't continue uh, to uh, operate on the basis that uh, the kind of the apartheid categories that we have, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the different kinds of schools we have. That that persists through the future. I mean, it's been 25 years now, 26 years uh, since change has come to South Africa, and uh, we still kind of have these different categories of schools, uh, and that's just not on. You know, we really have to pressurise our government to make the to to have the political will to make the changes that are required.
1: So, Professor Bauer, my next question would then is. How would this type of intervention help bridge the gap between the private sector and public education? And moreover, does this shine a new light on the importance of private companies and NGOs partnering more so during a pandemic? And how does the importance of this partnership between NGOs and uh, private companies become even more important?
2: No, I think that, uh, Hitler, I think that that's a really critical question. Again, I mean, I thank you for these really important questions. You know, the unemployment rate of graduates in South Africa is, is low. It's it's about six percent or something like that. It's between six and seven percent. You know, compared to thirty uh, percent, you know, in the general public and forty to fifty percent uh, for for youth in South Africa. Uh, now, that's an indication that there's still a very strong absorption rate of graduates, you know, in the economy. And uh, the reason I'm giving you this data is because I think that there needs to be a strong understanding in the private sector, you know, that the graduates that are produced by the universities are vital to their operations. Uh, and that they have to see this as uh, as an indication that uh, as an indication of sub responsibility on their side to partner with higher education um, and that 's why I think you know that this uh, uh, this step that has been taken by uh, standard Bank APSA Bank, and various other donors uh, that 's why i think it 's such an important uh, uh, step on their uh, on their part because what it indicates is some kind of understanding that uh, they have a role to play in ensuring that our university sector operates at, a, at an optimal level. At the end of the day, uh, you know, their productivity and their kind of um, uh, ability to generate uh, profits and so on depends on the effectiveness of the graduates that enter employment uh, in, in the private sector. So, so this need for a partnership is a hugely important one. Um, I, I should just mention that at uh, University of South Africa, uh, we've established a strategy group, which we call the World of Work Strategy Group, which really sits at the interface between uh, the universities, the 26 universities and uh, uh, you know, the world of work, the employers and so on. And the idea is really to try and understand how to lever greater partnerships between the universities and the private sector. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, we have to keep working at that. You know, that we have to try and make sure that this is not just uh, something that happens at points of crisis, if you like, but that's something that becomes something that's very uh, a, a part of the, the natural operations of our education system. Um, and you mentioned the NGO sector. Uh, I want to add to that, you know, community-based organizations. Uh, the trade union movement and so on, all of them have a serious kind of uh, um, all of them have serious uh, roles to play in building the capacity of universities to um, to uh, to be optimal in what they achieve. Um, uh, it, it addresses another question, I think, which is uh, perhaps an, a more serious question, and that is that uh, it uh, it addresses this very powerful idea that. We need to ensure that the ownership of universities becomes a public ownership, that you know, universities are not seen as elite institutions, that they really belong to society. Um, and that if we can galvanize these partnerships, then we embed our universities in the communities and in the society in which they, uh, they exist. Uh, so generating these partnerships is uh, critically important, as I understand it, at least. And lastly, Prof,
3: this year marks five years since the Fees Must Fall protest, where students were calling for a decolonization of education and more financial support for students who are from poor families. How far are we in meeting those demands?
2: Um, so, let me just say that um you know the one of the outcomes of the Febus fall campaign is in fact you know what we refer to as the d e g t bursaries you know the uh, the 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 nisfas administered bursaries, and you know however you want to cut it, those bursaries are really important they have really played a critical role in ensuring that uh you know, that, uh, that uh, thousands of students who would not otherwise have been able to go to university are now able to go to university. Um, now, that's not the full story, of course, because, you know, we still are struggling to understand how to meet the needs of the missing middle and, and you know, this category of students that we spoke about earlier. Uh, And that's something which we haven't yet resolved. Uh, There are a number of projects underway at the moment to try and understand how to meet the needs of that category of students. Um, uh, And of course, if fees must fall did not happen, uh, the likelihood is we would not have had these, you know, this progress. So, um, so I'm not suggesting at all that the solutions have all been met. But what I am suggesting is that I think there's a lot of work going on uh, to deal with the needs of the missing middle students and that we need to focus our attention there now. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, for those students that fall into what the government calls poor and working class uh, families, uh, that those, the needs of those students, uh, in essence, have been met now. Um, on the issue of decolonization, I'm really pleased to say that there's a lot of work going on in our sector um and it's happening. At different levels, you know. Uh, on the one hand, it's happening at the sectoral level. There are whole range of national discussions going on. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, every single university has got projects underway uh, to deal with the issue of uh, the decolonized university, if you like. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting at all that we are there, right? I mean, I think that this is a very challenging, very difficult, very uh, kind of deep, a deep set of uh, um, of uh, of, uh, of changes that uh, that we need to kind of implement, if you like. Uh, but uh, at the same time uh, there's a tremendous amount of really interesting work going on at our universities uh, to address the issue around issues around the decolonization of the curriculum and so on. Um, uh, at usaf itself one of our focuses is uh, is to try and understand uh, you know what is the driving force in trying to understand what an engaged what an engaged institution is an institution that's really deeply rooted in its realities and in in the context in which it finds itself because in this in a sense that has to be at the basis of what we think of as a decolonized institution you know clearly we are global institutions but we can only enter the global terrain on the basis that we are generating knowledge about our local context right you know it's only on those terms that we can enter the global knowledge system on our own terms if you like. You know, we should set the knowledge project for our universities. Um, And that's what we are. uh, It's a a really big uh, project at USAF at the moment.
1: And finally, from me, Professor Bauer, at the beginning of the lockdown, one of the more contentious conversations surrounded the ending of the academic year, with many people arguing that it wasn't a practical solution to the issue at hand. From your expertise, could you please take us through why it may have been impractical to simply end the academic year and start again in 2021?
2: Yeah, well... You know the the school system, of course, produces uh, a significant number of matriculants every year, right? So, uh, had we not completed, had we not found ways to complete the 2020 academic year, it would have meant that we would have had a whole cohort of matriculants, a whole cohort of students finishing with the National Senior Certificate, who would not have been able to come into university simply because uh, the universities are already operating at capacity, if you like. So, it was critically important for us to ensure. That we complete the academic year uh, to try to ensure that the next cohort of young people coming through the National Senior Certificate System would get, gain access to, uh, to universities uh, in, in the, for the 2021 academic year. Uh, so that's the one issue. There's a second issue, of course, and that is that our, you know, that our society uh, and the economy and so on requires a constant flow of graduates uh, into the, you know, into the economy and into the hospitals and into the schools and so on. Um, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but you know, the university system produces about 220,000 graduates a year. Uh, And those students, uh, those graduates really get absorbed into the, you know, into the labor market, if you like. So, um, so it's critically important. Uh, It was always critically important that we found interesting and important ways to complete the academic year, 2020 academic year. Um, And uh, as you know now, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the start of the 2021 academic year is only going to be between March and April. It will be staggered for the different universities, uh, and it will only be March and April. Uh, and uh, yeah, and what that means in, this, in essence is that the 2021 academic year is going to have to be uh, carefully uh, kind of repackaged, if you like, so that we can finish that academic year at the end of 2021. We've just been
1: joined by Professor Ahmed Bauer here on The COVID Report, CEO of University South Africa, helping us discuss the plight of the students who fall within the missing middle and discussing the ways in which everyone needs to pull together to make sure the playing field is evened out for everybody playing on it. Speaking of, it's no use to Find the thoughts and sentiments on a matter as sensitive as this, then you yourselves, the students, and those who may feel as if they are part of this missing middle. We went out to find out what the students feel about the adaptation to online learning, the practicalities and the logistics of staying with online learning, whether or not they would prefer going back to the way things were or fully embrace the new way of doing things, the new normal, so to speak. This is what a few of these students had to say.
4: It's quite unfortunate that the structure of things is either, you know, here to cater for those who are able to afford and those who absolutely have no level of affordability at all. Um, and it kind of leaves those in the middle. So how do we then cater for the ones who are really, really in the middle and they can make it, but also to an extent they can't make it. And I think ideally for me, what would work is not even categorizing just don't categorize. Give people what they deserve, award students with what they need to, you know, improve their education, improve their academic skills. And I think with that, maybe we could be moving towards something greater. Let those who deserve it, reap them.
1: I think government should do is, um, they should sort of, um, if NASFAS doesn't um, accept the students or the upcoming students, then government should then step in and um do something about that because that's just another batch of people who are unemployed who are just um in the system but they're not working with the system they're not um they're not providing uh to the economy you know so yeah that's just what i think
4: it should be a fund that is almost similar to NSFAS but in this way where we are Regarded as our parents are getting over the three hundred and fifty thousand bracket per annum. So I think there should be a find where the government and the universities we pay half and the government is able to help us yeah. pay half the other half. So that you know we can at least lessen the number of un dropouts at university levels most of us we normally take gap years so that we can go make money come back to pay for the fees so because it's also it's even hard it's hard i don't want to lie so i've realized already if government can meet uh us halfway we pay half the money and they are able to subsidize half the other money and we pay it the same way as and as far as i think it will be much better yes
0: there should be at least a certain percentage of which students whose parents earn between three hundred and sixty upwards pay. Because now it also puts parents in a pressure. We have parents by law, they earn more than three hundred and sixty or between that, and they have other responsibilities. We have parents who don't support only one child, they support multiple children. And it doesn't mean, or if parents earn a certain amount of money, which is 360 upwards, then they don't have other responsibilities. Now, we have uh, students whose parents earn this amount of money, but still don't have proper resources, study resources. They still don't have proper um, uh, study environments or accommodation. So simple. There should just be at least a certain amount of percentage money. That is detected from these students who fall under the brackets uh, or whose parents fall under the brackets that's the only solution or if that's not the case at least there should be a different um, um a different um bursary that cater for those students i think first of all maybe government needs to review the uh, sort of perimeter that they use to catch if someone qualifies for NASFAs because maybe they sort of load the bar too much because there are some Students who come from families where, even if it looks like they afford, but there are other costs that they have to take care of as a family, so they can't afford fees. I think government must just increase the bar, or sort of I don't know, they increase the bar or lower, just to make sure they accommodate them as well, because they might be below the so-called NASFAS range, but in actual fact, they, they 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 can't afford. Or also, government must encourage more companies to to expand their bursary schemes. Or their student apprenticeship schemes just to make sure they as private players sort of take a leading role in, in training because these students are their future employees so they must be involved during the training process.
1: A big thank you to everyone who has just lent their voices to this discussion. Also, a big thank you to our guest, Professor Ahmed Bauer, who helped us kick off this discussion about the plight of the students who identify as being part of the missing middle.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vits. By, by Voice of Wits. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1.
3: 88.1. Or streams via Stream. www.vofm.co.za.